and welcome. We are live. Welcome everybody to uh, this week's um, 4.0 Solutions Industry 4.0 Weekly Podcast for Tuesday, September 27th, 2022. I am your host, Walker D. Reynolds. And it is good to be back. You guys may remember we were not here last week. I posted a um, a keynote reaction video um, last week from Folsom, California at the Ignition Community Conference X, number 10. It was the 10th annual, or it was the 10th Ignition Community Conference in Folsom. It was a great week. Um, I was actually out there about a day and a half. I got out Monday Saw some people Monday night, uh, went to reception, was there all day Tuesday, and then I left first thing Wednesday morning, had a chance to hang out with uh, John McKeon and Pat McCarthy from GIS, our friends in Ireland. We actually were on the shuttle together to the airport to head out. Um, lots of great fellowship. I got a chance to run into a bunch of people that I hadn't seen in years I've talked to, but I hadn't had a chance to see them in the last four years or so. And it was a, it was a great show. Um, for those of you who didn't get a chance to go, uh, what I'll say is, um, you know, the word of the day for inductive automation is cloud. I mean, that's what it boils down to. You know, the, the big takeaway, there were basically three takeaways for me uh, at the end of the for the the first day of session, so I did the keynote. I I attended the keynote, which I shot the video on, and then I attended Cirrus Link's presentation in the afternoon uh, that Arlen Nipper gave on their new IoT bridge uh, module for Azure, and he did a pretty cool demo um, with uh, crap. <laughs> Sorry. I'm forgetting his chief technical officer, the the uh, or his uh, his lead developer that's been with him forever, who develops most of the modules. Um, it was a very cool demo. It showed for the first time um, Sparkplug's capability for um, essentially consuming UDTs into a namespace and then publishing those UDTs up into Azure and then consuming those UDTs uh, from Azure back into the namespace. That was a really, really cool demo. I was actually surprised at how people weren't blown away enough, um, but I'll kind of get into that here in a second. So the, the first takeaway was definitely cloud. Uh, the second takeaway was inductive automation has just had like a massive change in leadership in the last six months. And, and I, and you know, I talked to a bunch of people at Inductive Automation about like this is a classic M&A strategy where you're, 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 if you plan on selling your company, you're going to change your leadership to a bunch of young executives who are going to have to stay on board for three to five years after the acquisition. But they insist. I mean, I talked to a bunch of people and they said, listen, Steve Heckman is absolutely adamant that we're not selling. And, and there are there are contractual protections put in place for all the new leaders in the company um, that will prevent them from, from uh, you know, or they'll, it'll penalize them if they, if they, you know, vote for a sale. So, um, and, and, and many people told me that at IA. So while everything, it looks like every single thing that they're doing from the outside is just classic M&A strategy. I mean, they're, they're moving, enterprise they're partnering with really large companies um i mean the hell they mentioned deloitte <laughs> they quoted deloitte in a couple of places during the keynote and that's a significant change for inductive automation like 10 years ago there's no fucking chance they would have quoted deloitte i mean deloitte was the enemy 10 years ago and now they were they were an example of what the problem was and the fact that they quoted them in the keynote is is really significant but um anyway you know, it was a really, really good show. The first, those first two things were, you know, cloud, massive change in leadership. Um, and then the last like big takeaway for me was, um, the state of systems integration. So we had, we, we brought six people, we, you know, and we're, you know, we had, um, you know, our team is, we have a very specific strategy in terms of like, talking to people when we're at shows and 
you know, John McLeod, who's our CXO, he's well known for, you know, he'll, he'll literally talk to every fucking person at a show. It's crazy. Uh, he, that's his thing, you know, <clears throat> but I had a lot of conversations. Um, our whole team had a lot of conversations with end users specifically whose primary comment was when we were asking them, Hey, you know, what's your experience with digital transformation so far? What's the, what do you consider the state of the, uh, um, the state of industry 4.0, right? And we're talking to large end users, some, you know, huge oil and gas companies, huge, you know, in food and Bev, like mostly really, really large organizations. And the one common theme that we kept hearing over and over again was how dissatisfied they were with their integrators, like that their integrators are over-promising and under-delivering. Um, how they don't have the resources they say they have, you know, they don't have the expertise that they say they have. Like this was the, a really common theme. I, I mean, over and over and over again. And today, this morning when I was meeting with our team and I was doing the debrief to get on the podcast, you know, Hey, you know what, anything you guys want me to touch on, you know, they made, made a point to say, Hey, make sure you point out that like this one thing that we keep hearing is, you know, end users are really dissatisfied with their integrators right now. There's a lot of them out there who are dissatisfied and there's a lot of them that went to the ICC show. Um, but it made me want to, there was a, a couple of different stories that I, uh, I wanted to tell today that I'm, I'm going to tell one is going to be related to Rockwell automation. Um, and the other story that I want to tell is related to, um, you know, industry 4.0, but the, the topics we're going to cover today, I want to, I'm going to go over the ICC recap real quick, answer any questions you guys might have. I want to talk about a big announcement that Volkswagen made in the last week. I want to talk about the topic of doing a proof of concept, like a really common theme, a common thing we're seeing in the industry, which I think is a huge mistake is you know, trying to run before you walk, right? And and really the way I'm encapsulating it is organizations who are doing digital transformation proof of concepts before they, they've they completed a digital transformation maturity assessment um, and, and why that's a huge mistake, massive mistake. And it's a very, very, very common mistake. And then the last thing we'll talk about is, you know, the announcement that Rockwell has joined SESME. I told you guys I would get more into detail on this and what are my feelings on it? Um, and then I'm going to answer some questions on Siemens and, you know, their digital interoperability. Uh, quick reminder, I can't, I don't watch the stream anymore. So the only comments I see are the ones where uh, the comments that you guys put in the chat, they will show up. So anything you put in, um, in the chat, I will see. So uh, Jeremy Tate, hey, Walker, interested on your opinion. Um Jeremy Tate, any specific opinion you want to hear from me? Um, Richard Shaw, that poisons the well for the good integrators. Yes, talking about the integrator stuff. Um, hello, Rick Schoonover from Canada. Uh, Mario Ishigawa, my dude. How's it going, man? Um, and then um, one last thing I want to say. We did our first session for the MES boot camp. Um, so for those of you who are in the community and those of you who are participating in the MES boot camp, we're building a core MES system. Um, we did our first session, not this past Saturday, but the Saturday before, uh, and it went really well. We did, we built the back end. Um, I have a video I'm going to be sending out, uh, that's sort of a, an accompanying video to any of you who are in the boot camp. We didn't announce that, but, um, Hey Rafi, it was great taking a picture with you, buddy. Um, I'll be sitting out an accompanying video that's got some, um, I'm going to show you how you could create the back end just using a script and I'll share that script. Uh, in the video, but when we did the first session, what we did was we built all of our, we built the master data model tables um, from scratch. Like we, we, you know, in the um, MySQL workbench from scratch for those who were not advanced SQL users, but I will have an advanced video to show you how to do it with just a, a startup script. Um, uh, real quick. I want to see what he said there. They have a point from the end user view, indeed, but they have a uh, Wasim, if you want to expand on that real quick, Wasim, indeed, but they have a point from the end user view. If you if you want to expand on that, what you mean. Um, and uh, and Jeremy Tate, what opinion you want to hear? I want to I want to go over this 
I want to talk about this topic of integrators over-promising and under-delivering. You guys have heard me talk about, um, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say two things. So if you're an end user, I, this is a really common question I get. How do, how do I know that I'm picking the right partners? Because digital transformation only, only fails for three reasons. Like if you, if you want to distill down why it is that we created too much technical debt or we didn't get the return on investment you thought we would get, or, you know, the, the, this digital transformation initiative didn't meet our expectations. It's really only one of three reasons. Number one, you have the wrong strategy. That is, I have the wrong digital strategy. The reason my goal of becoming a digital company and the strategy we're trying to execute isn't what's right for our business, right? Number two, we picked the wrong technology, right? So that technology is what drives the architecture, the digital infrastructure. We've picked the wrong technology. So that would generally be that the technology we picked is you know, legacy, it's pull response, it's server client-based as opposed to edge-driven, okay? That is the smart thing is publishing into an infrastructure as opposed to a smart infrastructure pulling a smart thing out in the world somewhere. That means it has to be aware of what's out there as opposed to as we scale up, as we add smart things, they just notify us. We, we create a self-aware infrastructure. So wrong technology is the second reason we would fail. We won't be able to, we won't be able to scale in that case. And the third one is wrong partners. So I picked the wrong partners, wrong vendors for the software. I picked the wrong partners for my um, architecture, wrong partners for project management, wrong partners to do my integration. So the, the number one question I get from the end user as it relates to the partners is how do I identify the right partners? And it's, it's, it's not that difficult actually, okay? Number one, you want to ask your partners some important questions. Like, if you're meeting with an integrator, you need to ask an integrator really three questions. Number one, what is your digital strategy? That is, what is your philosophy for building digital strategic solutions for your customers? What's your philosophy? Like, and here are some examples of philosophies. There's, a, there's the philosophy of go deep, stay long, right? And this is a really common one where say vendors, integrators, consultancy firms, what they want to do is they want to get deep into an organization with their contract labor and they want that labor to stay as long as they possibly can, right? It's just, it's a, it's all a, it's a volume business. Bill as many hours as you possibly can. Another strategy would be, and this is the strategy we use, is our job is to educate your organization and get you started and part of that digital transformation journey for us is to teach you how to do what we do. So there's one part of the philosophy that go deep, stay long is where the, we're an expert. We're, we're not going to teach you to be an expert and we're just going to sort of stay there forever. And we're going to do projects for you, right? Over and over and over again, we're always going to be looking for the next little tiny project that we can do over and over and over again in perpetuity for as long as you'll have us until you run out of money. That is the prevalent philosophy, okay? The prevalent philosophy is I want to be the engineering firm that provides the labor to you forever, okay? Uh, and then the second philosophy is, no, we're a consultancy firm who has engineering professionals who's going to help you transform your organization, and that includes educating your organization to support and maintain your digital infrastructure yourself, okay? So you want to ask that question, what is your digital strategy and philosophy? And how do you build solutions? Number two, you need to ask your integrators and your vendor partners, do you enter into vendor agreements? Do you enter into strategic partnerships with other vendors that require that you meet certain sales goals? Okay, and this is, this is probably the biggest problem in our industry is the people that you are, that end users are hiring to solve their problems are being paid by a vendor to use their product. And they are under in immense pressure to sell that product, even if that product's not right for you. Like Rockwell Automation is famous for this. When I first started, when I first started Intellic Integration in 2015, I'm going to talk about this Rockwell says me thing and some questions that you know John Dyke is going to have to answer about the Rockwell says me partnership, the fact that they put a Rockwell vice president on the board of directors for 
says me, which is fucking absurd. Okay. It's, it's literally absurd. I've seen no evidence that Rockwell has changed their business strategy. Okay. Um, the, when I first started Intellic, I needed to get, uh, like a Rockwell toolkit for some reason. I don't remember what it was. It was me and I, I wasn't in charge of the automation group. So I was on the enterprise side. I was running the enterprise side. I had a business partner who was running the automation side. And he had reached out to Rockwell and, you know, hey, we need a toolkit, blah, blah, blah. And the first thing they do is they go to our website, right? And they go, and they, what are we all about and everything? And we, we're meeting with a Rockwell rep here in Texas. And that Rockwell rep basically says, well, you know, you're going to have to remove any references to ignition inductive automation on your website. You know, we're like, what? You know, this is like 2015. And the other thing that they said was, you're, you're going to need to lead with Rockwell. So you don't have to use Rockwell exclusively, but you got to lead with it. So that is you have to, Rockwell's got to be the first choice or the first option presented to the client. And now I'm not going to pick on Rockwell here about this. Rockwell isn't unique. Most, most of the vendors who are entering into these types of agreements where hey, you're going to become a partner and we're going to give you discounts and you know, you'll get a 30% discount on any sale and therefore that that 30%, you'll sell it at list and 30% of that sale is going to go to you. And those types of arrangements are very, very common in this industry. I mean, it's really run like the mafia in many ways. And the customer doesn't know. This is my biggest complaint. The customer does not know. And I'm going to use this example here in a second. Um. So you need to ask your your vendors, do you enter into these strategic partnerships with vendors where you have to meet, you're agreeing to meet certain sales goals, okay? It doesn't mean if, the, if, that, if that integrator partner or that vendor tells you, yes, they do, that doesn't mean that you can't work with them. But it does mean that you need to find an agnostic partner who's going to be in charge. And so our recommendation has been if you're going to use a if you're going to use a vendor partner, okay, if you're going to use uh, a company, you know, like inductive like let's say you're a premier integrator. If you're going to use a premier integrator with inductive automation, you need to you should be hiring an agnostic consultant who is peer reviewing the recommendations that that premier integrator is making. Cuz if you're a premier integrator with inductive automation, the only options that you're going to be presenting to that customer are ignition options. Okay. You're not, it, it doesn't matter if there's a better solution out there. You're going to be, you're going to be recommending ignition options and that's it. Especially if inductive automation is the one who referred that, that opportunity to you. Now that's not, I'm not picking on inductive automation here. This is just how this process works. It's how it works. And you, as, a, as, the, as the end user, you need from your consultants, especially in digital transformation, not in automation, but when we're looking at the automation of business processes as opposed to, which is industry 4.0 versus the, the automation of industrial processes, which was industry 3.0, especially when you're looking at like wholesale digital infrastructure, that is a quilt. You're building a quilt on a common infrastructure. And that quilt is made up of solutions across many vendors. It's technology specific, you know, many vendors on common technology, not one vendor on their technology. Okay. So th this is one of the biggest, when, when end users come to us and say, Hey, what do we need to do in order to be successful here? Picking our partners, ask them, what is their digital strategy? That philosophy, number two, do they enter into partnerships? Okay. And if they do, you got to get an agnostic consultant who's going to, who's going to be your architect and is going to manage all your vendor specific partners. All right. If you, if you go ahead and I mean, it's like, if you go ahead and you hire a, a, an integrator who is entered into these agreements, then you are, you're never going to get an impartial opinion on the technology. You're always going to get the sales opinion on the technology. Your architect needs to be agnostic. Okay, your architect has got to be the person who's going to say, here, this is what's good about this technology. Here's what's bad about it. 
This is what's good about this product. Here's what's bad about this product. Here is the, here's the corner you're painting yourself into by making that selection. Okay. Um, the other question I get a lot is from integrators, which says, how do we pick the clients we should work with? Because if you're a systems integrator, you'll know, you'll know that the, there is nothing that is more painful or more devastating to your organization than getting bogged down with a client you are not right for who, and who is not right for you. Okay. Which I'm going to get into the, this, this other topic with this response. So, and it's, it's the concept of doing of proof of concept before a digital transformation maturity assessment. Okay. So for those of you quick, brief overview, the DTMA is a methodology for assessing where an organization stands right now. Where are they right now? Where do they want to go? And how do we draw a vector that's going to get them to where they want to go? Understanding that digital transformation is a strategy, okay, on common infrastructure where we are going to get smarter over time and therefore what we want will change over time. Okay, understanding those basic concepts. Okay. The output of a digital transformation maturity assessment, there are three primary outputs, and then there's a fourth auxiliary one. The first one is, what is this company's digital strategy? Three-sentence statement. Number two, what are their minimum technical requirements? So what is what are the minimum technical requirements that they're going to give to their vendors to say, if you want to plug into our infrastructure, you got to meet these minimum technical requirements. If not, we got to put a gateway that does in between your technology and us. And number three, what does our architecture look like? The auxiliary um, output is where do we start? What is the proof of concept we should do to prove that we pick the right strategy? We have the right strategy. We've written the right minimum technical requirements and we have the right architecture so that we can demonstrate the value to your board. That's what a digital transformation maturity assessment is. And it plots an organization on a normalized distribution of you know, over 1,200 companies now. And it basically shows you where you fall in terms of digital transformation maturity. There are many organizations. The integrator will say, how do I avoid getting bogged down with the wrong client? And the answer is, don't do a proof of concept with a client who hasn't, who doesn't have a digital strategy, who doesn't have an architecture, and who hasn't written minimum technical requirements. So ask your customer when they come to you and they say, hey, I want to digitally transform, and I've got this idea for a proof of concept. You ask three questions. Okay, great. Let's get started. Number one, what's your digital strategy? And you go, my what? And you go, number two, what are your minimum technical requirements? And they'll go, my what? And then they'll say, no, number three, say, what's your architecture look like? Your digital infrastructure. My what? And then you say, the starting point from there is, okay, well, what we have to do, we have to start with the education phase, the education step in digital maturity so that we can write you a strategy, write you minimum technical requirements, write you an architecture. If you're an integrator and you have a potential client who's not willing to do that, fucking run. Yeah, the, the, the greatest word in the human language is no. It's no. And learn to say it. Okay, so as an integrator, you have to, you have to stay away from clients who aren't willing or unable or incapable or lack the leadership to start in the right place in the process. Okay, doing a proof of concept before you have a digital strategy, an architecture, and minimal technical requirements is literally trying to, is, is like asking a baby the moment it comes out of its mother's womb to run a 100 meter dash. It's literally, the, it's a, it, that's not a, that's not hyperbole. It's the metaphorical equivalent. All right, let me go through some of these questions here. Um, Wasim, if the integrators can't deliver in time, it harms the manufacturer process to a different degree. Agreed. Um, Ali, I felt empty last Saturday after a two-hour mastermind and four-hour boot camp week before last Saturday. Oh, this last Saturday was really empty. So Ali, we had mastermind on Friday, two hours, and then we had four hours of MES boot camp. And Ali, the following weekend, he had nothing going on. So um <laughs> By the way, I was glad to feel empty on Saturday because it was, it was mastermind boot camp and then ICC and then I came back and I had to do all my admin stuff. Um, 
the voice of the customer speaks volumes. So great. Um, and then Jeremy Tate, my opinion and knowledge on Siemens. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to get to it, buddy. Appreciate it, Jeremy. Um, Brian Pryby, the first, the first philosophy does work well for small manufacturers that don't have the resources to do it themselves, or they would rather put their time towards their products. Yeah, but the go deep, stay long. Agreed, Brian. But understand that small manufacturers don't stay small for long. Right? They either get acquired, they go out of business, or they get acquired. Right? And go deep, stay long is not a long-term strategy. It's an intermediate strategy. Right? And as long as we recognize that, we're good. Uh, Hani Hamed, if you depend on the client to provide you the knowledge about the industry, you may end with less useful information. This is due to less interest you may find and also a high expectation from the client to provide them with the knowledge they miss. Also, we need to ask them about if they have a cumulative experience in our industry. Uh, here, I can say that most integrators fall in the trap of use cases as the way to develop the digital transformation. Scalability in a digital platform is much more required than presenting use cases as proof of concept. Agreed, honey. Uh, that's, a, that's a different conversation, but this is my biggest complaint about Deloitte, for example, which, by the way, brings me back to my point about inductive automation literally quoting Deloitte in the keynote address. That's significant. I mean, if there's anything that I've learned about inductive automation in the amount of time, in the time that I've worked with them, there is no company on the planet who controls their messages, their messaging tighter than inductive automation does. There, there is nothing that inductive automation says forward facing that does not have a purpose. Nothing, nothing is inconsequential. They never say a word publicly that it, that is not a word of consequence. So when they quote Deloitte in the keynote address, that means something. Even the individual vendors that they quoted when there was a, the operate, the COO was quoting in the keynote address and she picked a bunch of members of the community. And there were a bunch of members of the community where she said, oh, so-and-so said this about our service department, so-and-so. Even the people they picked, they didn't pick those people for the quote they made. They picked those people for the people they were. Like there's inductive automation is very careful about every single thing they say publicly. Like if there's anything I've learned about inductive automation, every single forward-facing message is incredibly carefully crafted and it's always of consequence, which brings me to the Deloitte thing and what Hani said here, which is he says here, I can say that the most, the biggest problem that integrators, um, they fall into is the trap of use cases as a way of developing digital transformation. Scalability in a digital platform is much more required than presenting use cases as a proof of concept. If you were to look at a, um, let's go to say McKenzie. If you do McKenzie, if you do Wipro, you do uh, Capgemini, you do um, any of the big IT companies, um, Rockwell, Emerson, um, Deloitte, any of those companies who do like assessments for manufacturers. And generally, they'll give you like a 100-page document when they're all done or 120-page document after they do these assessments. I've reviewed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these documents, okay? So even Deloitte's recommendations, I've probably reviewed no fewer than 75 to 100 of their assessments. Those assessments are 99% identical. If you were to take Deloitte's assessment for customer A, customer B, customer C, they're, it's literally almost identical. It's like a, it's a template. It's a copy paste thing. Then there's some unique stuff in there. But if you look the, what's the output, it's a list of use cases. That's all it is. And it's like, do use case one, do use case two, do use case three. There's nothing in there. I, I'll always go in and I'll go, okay, where's the strategy in here? Where's the architecture in here, right? Where's the minimum technical requirements? Where is the strategy for iterating? And none of that is there in these documents, right? It's just a list of use cases. So, honey, I agree with you a thousand percent. It's one of the biggest problems that we have. Um, Wasim, absolutely manufacturer who did not have any intention to invest enough to initially create digital strategy is the biggest trap for integrators, especially for startups. Yes. Rubber stamp, the use case isn't a strategy. That's right. I'm going to tell you a Rockwell story, okay? 
real quick. So I worked and I, I've told this story before. I just can't remember if I told, I know I haven't told it in a podcast. So if you've heard this before, please forgive me. But you know, one of the reasons that I am so hard on Rockwell and there are many reasons. Okay. There are, I could give you probably three dozen examples over the course of my career, but this is the most egregious example. Okay. Um, when I worked for the end user, so I used, I worked for the end user, um, for the first 10 years of my career, 10, 12 years, I worked in, I worked in a salt mine and then I worked in a printing facility. Then I worked in a steel um, facility, a rolling mill. And then I worked in tier one automotive. When I went from the steel mill, we were a Rockwell house. Okay. Um, we had, if you guys aren't familiar with how Rockwell does their, their business, basically how they go to market. They basically, uh, they sign distributors who become, they are literally the only distributor within a specific region, which they call AR, they call it an AR region. That's the only distributor in that region. They're the preferred distributor and they're the only one who can offer quantity discounts to anybody who lives within that geographic region. Okay. So when I worked for the steel company that I worked for, Nucor Steel, I was in like Northern New York, Northern Central New York. And I, I was using, I was under one distributor. The distributor that I worked with in, in the Northern part of the state was very like customer focused. Okay. So they weren't yet yeah, right away. Rockwell is not unique in doing this, by the way. Of course, of course not. Uh, Schneider does the same thing. Uh, Siemens does something very similar. All, all of the major, major companies do this type of thing but none of the emerging companies do. Okay. E e none of the emerging um, um, industrial companies do this. Why? Because they, everyone's identified that it's a problem in our industry. Okay. Um, it's a way of siloing data and, and exploiting customers and stuff there. And I give you, I'm going to give you the example here. So I, I, my distributor when, when I was with the steel company was a very pro customer distributor. Okay. So Rockwell, Rockwell puts a shit ton of pressure, pressure on their distributors. I mean, they Rockwell really, um, Rockwell really operates like the mob. I mean, in a lot of ways in, in, and I don't mean that pejoratively, I don't mean that to beat up on Rockwell, but like you, oftentimes you feel like the tactics are strong arm. You know what I mean? It, they're using these strong arm tactics to manage their accounts and stuff. But when I worked for this steel company, we had a, our distributor was really a huge advocate for us. And so we had the best pricing that we could possibly get. And the distributor is the one who did that for us. So anybody who's worked with Rockwell, Rockwell's got a shit ton of product codes. Okay. They have product families. So they have like a number, let's say that number is like, say six digits, uh, five zeros and a one would be the product family. And maybe that product family is compact logics, right? Then underneath that product family is a list of all the products that go in that product family. So it would be like all of the IO cards, the power supplies, the backplanes, all that stuff, right? They have a product family that's power flex drives. They have a product family that's Stratix switches, right? So when you're a Rockwell um, vendor, when you're, you're going to be using a lot of Rockwell products. Each year, you will tell Rockwell or you'll tell your, your distributor, here's how many, here's the quantity of the things I think I might buy this year from you guys. And then the, what they'll do is they'll work with Rockwell to negotiate uh, a multiplier off of the list price for that um, product. So say they'll go and they'll say, I can get you 0.72 on this family of products. Okay. Most of the time for when I worked for Nucor Steel, it was on the family level. Like our distributor was handling all of it. Hey, we're going to buy a bunch of compact logic stuff this year. And he'd get us the 0.72 on the full product family, right? I switched and I went to a tier one automotive supplier, which was about an hour and a half south. And I moved into a different AR. There was a different distributor in the region. So I still lived in the same house, but now instead of driving an hour north to go to work, I was driving 40 minutes south to go to work. And now I'm in a new AR with a completely different distributor. And I had insight into how Rockwell was doing their pricing that 
the people who I worked with in my new job had no idea about the 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 vendor the the sales guy who with the distributor had been the account manager for a decade you know it was all the classic shit you know buying guys lunch and golf clubs and you know it was all grease and palms behind the scenes and it was really fucked up but anyway i remember i was doing the bill of materials for a pin machine so i we were also an oem we were a tier 1 automotive supplier but we designed and built our own equipment and I was the engineer who was designing this pin machine. It was making the pins for chain link, uh, for for uh, links and chains. And I quoted um, Compact Logic's family for like thirty machines. And I get back the quote from Rockwell, and I'm literally paying like twenty five percent more than what I was paying where I and, and I bought and I was buying twice as many in that family as I was for the steel company. And so I, I brought in the, um, the rep and I asked them, I'm like, what kind of discounts are we getting? Like, what is our, what have we negotiated with you guys? And we're a machine builder, by the way, at Newcore steel, we were not a machine builder. And that he, he got really pissed that I asked that question. Like, cause I'm a new guy and he, he I'm like rocking the boat. Long story short, I go to our purchasing guy and I and I said, you know, I've been going through everything that we've bought from Rockwell over the last two years. And by my calculation, based on where I just came from, we've overpaid by about $2 million. If you had the same agreements I had at Newcore Steel where we weren't a machine builder, we would have spent $2 million less. Think about that. $2 million fucking dollars. So this escalated. This whole thing went way up the chain. It went to like the regional vice president in that northeast region of you know the United States. Um, him, the 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 distributor, you know, it was like Rockwell, the distributor. We had all these meetings in the boardroom and all that stuff. And I'm a very disagreeable guy. So if you lie to me, I'm going to call you out in front of everybody. I'll embarrass you. I'll humiliate you. I'll call you out. And that's exactly what I did. Let me say this. When we were all, when it was all said and done, I got a lot of pushback from the engineers I worked with because they were buddies with this, this rep and stuff, but they were perfectly fine with our company spending millions of dollars more than we needed to. When it was all said and done, we had a different rep. We nearly ended up with a different distributor, but Rockwell fought tooth and nail to make sure that that distributor stayed in that region. They fought tooth and fucking nail to keep that distributor there, even though that distributor had done us dirty. And there was no way, objectively, you could argue they didn't do us dirty. They did us dirty, okay? Um, at, it, in, and, it, and, at, and the best case scenario is they did us dirty by omission. Like, so that is, they weren't, they weren't going to bat for us the way the distributor I had come from had. But the, because Rockwell organizes their ARs the way they do, you would never know. There's no competitor to tell you that you're getting ripped off in their eyes there because Rockwell doesn't allow you to compete in a region. Okay. So when I would ask the, I, you know, I went to automation fair and, you know, I went with that Rockwell rep and everything. And, and I liked the guy a lot, this Italian sales guy, you know, he was like a greasy, slimy used car salesman type of guy. You know, he was shit talker and blah, blah, blah. But the, the still, the, the fact of the matter is, is we were, we overpaid by, by my calculations, $2 million over the last couple of years. Okay. Um, Rockwell was not appalled enough. They were more pissed off that it had been brought to light than it was that this is what was actually going on because the regions were right next to each other. They knew full well that this steel manufacturer was getting this type of discount versus the tier one automotive supplier, which was getting a completely different one. And, and in many cases, paying full list price for products that, that the tier one automotive supplier thought they were getting a discount on. That was the fucking crime. And there was no, they didn't know the difference because at this time, Rockwell didn't have that. Um, there's a toolkit thing they can't, that they gave you on a CD where you could look at list prices and multipliers and stuff that didn't exist yet. It was a spreadsheet. And if they had shared it with you, you would know. So 
that's just one example of where I was like, what that, you know, Rockwell did my company dirty. And, and, and because of that, they did the people I worked with dirty. Now, let me be fair to Rockwell here because I don't, I don't want to, I've had lots of good experiences with Rockwell and there are many great products that I've worked with, uh, you know, that they've developed. Like in fact, asset center, I think asset center is one of the best products that Rockwell's ever created. It's it, I'm actually disappointed that it didn't go. Um, it didn't become a bigger product, right? I've had, I've had some really good experiences with Rockwell in my career and I still use their products. Okay. But I don't disagree with the way that they operate their. I don't agree with the way they operate their business. And I mean, I'm not the only one. There are fucking, there are hundreds of thousands of people in our industry who have been wronged, who hate Rockwell for years. I have been calling Rockwell out on this channel. This is the number of times anyone from Rockwell has ever come here to defend themselves. And that invitation is wide open. And the reason why is because they can't. That's why they won't come here. By the way, there's nobody in the community who ever says, you know what? I want to go on there and defend Rockwell. You know, let's go to JP Monas. So JP said, that's how General Motors paid $6,000 for an L63. If you were a machine builder and not asking for SPRs, uh, then you're not, then not your sh machine builder. That's how Rockwell set up the game. Um, Orlando, from my experience, Rockwell does business agreements to use their products. Then engineers jump in and ask, why are we using Rockwell? That's my question. My question is, why does anyone need Rockwell today? Let me say this. Let me ask you this question. And this is, this is really, and, and I'm going to get to the says me partnership. I'm going to read it here in a second. What is the one product? Give me a product that Rockwell has that's best in class. That is, it is the best product available on the market for its functional capability. And I'll, you guys can list them there if you want to. And the, and the answer is, if you guys want my opinion, it's none. Rockwell doesn't have any product that's best in class. They've got some that are close. Like I think the Control Logics family, if we're just talking programmable logic controller and we're not talking edge compute computation that is on board, then Control Logics platform is an exceptional platform. Okay. But is it best in class? It's it would be very difficult to make the argument that the Control Logics platform is superior to say Bedrock Automation or to Opto 22. It would be really, really hard to make that case. And by the way, moreover, it would be Rockwell would lose. Rockwell would lose against. Um, Rockwell is going to lose against in any um, benchmarking. The Control Logics platform is going to lose in any benchmarking against Bedrock or against Opto Twenty Two, or moreover, probably even Phoenix Contact. They're going to lose in benchmarking. Rockwell has no best-in-class product. They have no best-in-class. Siemens does. I mean, when it comes to motion, it is really fucking hard to find. I mean, you could argue that Mitsubishi, that Mitsubishi is on par with Siemens in motion control. But it's pretty hard to make the argument that Siemens isn't best-in-class in motion control. Okay, it's pretty hard not to make that argument. You, you could make an argument against it, but Rockwell isn't best in class in anything. And that's the crime. The only thing Rockwell's really good at doing is leveraging market share, leveraging their market share for more sales. Um, Brian Pryby, AOIs from years of private development. Yeah, add-on instructions. So let's, let's give Rockwell credit where credit is due. Uh, add-on instructions within the control logics platform um, was a game changer, right? A AOIs were a, were a great way of taking if uh, Rockwell partner products, right? Uh, I can't remember what they call it. Rockwell partner solutions, enterprise solutions, whatever it is. You know, um, Mettler Toledo, 
right, can write their own add-on instructions for their scales that you can just drop a Mettler Toledo AOI into a control logics or a compact logics PLC, and you'll be able to compute communicate and control that scale uh, natively without having to write any of that logic. It's, you just ship the AOI with it. Add-on instructions were a game changer. Okay, they were absolutely a game changer. Add-on instructions are 20 years old. <laughs> I mean, that's my point. My my point is, is yes, I, I Haney, Siemens is dominating the field in motion control. Okay. Um, but let's talk about this SESME um, Rockwell partnership, which I just think is just a horrible fucking move. I mean... I, I, I let me start with this. John John Dyke, who is the CEO of Sesme, uh, which is the um, Smart Manufacturing Institute, right? It's funded by the U.S. government, and John is a former uh, executive with Rockwell Automation. I think he was like the global he, he was the global lead for s- software development, software products, right? So Factory Talk and all the you know, Factory Talk suite of products. Um, I like John a lot. Smart guy, great guy, actually. Um, but recently, in, in the beginning of this month, Sesme announced that they were partnering with Rockwell Automation. And I'm going to read the, the press release. September 8th of this year, Rockwell, the world's largest company dedicated to industrial automation and digital transformation, which is horseshit. They are not dedicated to digital transformation. They are dedicated to selling the Rockwell stack. Um, has joined the SESME, the Smart Manufacturing Institute, as its newest member. John said, John Dyke said, we're thrilled to have a market maker like Rockwell join us to help advance the adoption of smart manufacturing across the U.S. manufacturing base. Uh, Because of their expertise in workforce development and sustainable manufacturing, Rockwell will become a welcome ally in our efforts to democratize smart manufacturing. Dyke said, to help accelerate this effort, Rockwell's Vice President of Sustainability, Tom O'Reilly, will join the SESME board of directors. Okay. So um, it, here, here is a, a problem I have. Okay. In, in any of these types of ventures that Rockwell gets their hands in, Rockwell gets their hands into this venture to do one thing and one thing only. And that is influence standards, influence decisions, influence development of products that sell more Rockwell products. This is why any, any, anybody who's been involved with the OPC foundation, let's just be honest. I mean, and I have these private conversations all the fucking time about how bureaucratic and political the OPC foundation is and how not how the OPC foundation isn't focused on solving the customer's problems because they're all they're doing is fighting over who, which company is going to have a bigger influence on, on how this companion spec is written. I'm talking to you, Microsoft. I'm talking to you, Rockwell Automation. Okay. The, the, everything that Rockwell gets their hands into is all about influencing people to buy Rockwell products. And I want to talk about Richard Blanchett here. He said, Rockwell is amazing at prioritizing education and getting their PLC in the hands of universities and tech centers. Yeah, Rockwell was also really influential in getting legi- you know, tax legislation written so that indu- so that they benefited from giving away that technology so that those engineers, the engineers were learning how to work on Rockwell PLCs and and therefore manufacturers would say, "Well, I'm going to use Rockwell because I can't hire people who can work on Phoenix Contact." This is why going technology specific, technology centric is more important than picking a platform or a vendor. Okay. Brian Pryby, Richard, I believe that is mostly due in part to the market share Rockwell has over the years. You weren't an effective controls engineer if you didn't know Rockwell. That's only true in the United States. Uh, By the way, I just want to point that out. Rockwell is not respected outside of the United States. I mean, go to, if you go to Europe, it's Siemens. If you go here, it's Rockwell. And everybody else is a also ran. Go to Japan, it's Omron and Mitsubishi, right? So um, only in the U.S. is Rockwell where, where it matters. And, and you can thank Purdue University for that. I mean, Rockwell has a 
super tight relationship with Purdue. You can thank Clarkson University in upstate New York for that. They have a super tight relationship with Clarkson, right? Um, but it, at the end of the day, at the, at the end of the day, the one thing Rockwell didn't take into account is that the U.S., the post-secondary education system was going to fall apart. Like, <laughs> how many of you know world-class engineers who graduate? Like, if you take if you take the top 50 engineers you've ever worked with in your career, and we're talking here in systems integration controls, digital transformation, top 50 engineers, I will bet a year's salary that less than 10% of the people in your top 10 went to an elite engineering school in the United States. Like when I was deciding where to go to school, it was, am I going to go to Purdue? Am I going to go to Cornell? Am I going to go to NC State? Like when I was, when I was deciding where I was going to study, I was having to pick a university to do it. Guess what? You don't have to go to a university to become the best engineer in the world. You can go get a degree in engineering or in English, and you can learn to be an engineer online. And if your brain operates the right way and you're intrinsically motivated versus extrinsically motivated, you can become a world-class engineer. And I shot a whole video on this, the top five, the be five best engineers I've ever worked with in my career. None of them went to Purdue. None of them went to Carnegie Mellon. None of them went to NC State. None of them went to Clarkson. None of them went to Cornell, MIT. Uh, Richard Blanchett, there are a couple of glimmers of hope I have come across but been underwhelmed looking at some of these programs. The IT field has almost gone 100% certification driven, 100%. Why not manufacturing? Because manufacturing is still very much a, um, manufacturing is still very much a good old boys club. It's still, you know, <sighs> Mafia driven, mafioso driven, right? Um, you know, talk to Jeff Rankinen about how hard it is to, to, you know, implement an innovative post-secondary education strategy. He's at Penn Tech and, you know, he is very much a, a change agent and ask him how hard it is to implement. Um, so I want to put a bow on the Rockwell says me thing. I hope, I hope Rockwell that what this part, what this partnership means is that Rockwell is changing their approach to the market and that by joining SESME, they, they want to be driven more by SESME's smart manufacturing philosophy, the profile-driven pro philosophy, open architecture, right? Um, then it means that Rockwell wants to meddle in what SESME is doing and steer where SESME is going. I hope it is the former rather than the latter. But based on my 20 plus years working with Rockwell, 23 years or whatever, um, I mean, does anyone really think Rockwell's ever going to change? And I mean, that's a fair question. I mean, if someone thinks I'm wrong, please tell me, right? But Rockwell executives, if you guys, if this has been shared around Rockwell, and it will, every time I bash Rockwell, 60% of the videos, 60% of the views come from people who work at Rockwell. Okay. We get to see the metrics. We know who's watching the videos. Okay. Lots of people at Rockwell will watch it and they won't do a fucking thing. I mean, the fact that Rockwell never comes on and defends themselves because they know that I'm going to chew them up and spit them out should tell the entire market exactly what they need to know about how Rockwell goes to market. Brian Priby, Toledo is one of the most heavily manufacturing focused cities where it's local university, the university of Toledo has cut back on their manufacturing focused degrees. A lot of that has to do with um, how are kids in high school being steered towards manufacturing degrees or, you know, focusing on manufacturing? You know, how do you get them? How do you get them? Look, you know, all of you guys who picked your degrees, you guys and gals. I mean, I have three kids in college right now and I got a, a fourth who's getting ready to go. You know, I'm highly educated with an advanced degree and all that. And, and, and even my kids don't know what to study and the school and their, their, their high schools don't steer them towards programs. And my kids all go to academies or went to academies. They don't, they don't steer them towards programs. There's no, you know, our, our educational system in the United States doesn't look to identify aptitude. 
you know, we don't, we don't go, oh, this is a person who has an engineering mind. This person's well suited for STEM, or this is a person who is, you know, very artistically driven and they might be really good in graphic design. What our, what our high schools do is hope that that kid finds graphic design on their own. Yeah. They're more worried about, you know, which bathroom you can go to the bathroom in and, and, you know, your pronouns and shit. They're not, they're not worried about, you know, schools aren't focused more on, you know, Hey, this is, this is a field you might be really well suited for. I mean, I, I've seen it with my own kids and my kids went to great high schools, academies, and even my kids' high schools don't steer them based on what their aptitudes are. So how would a kid today end up in a, in a, in a program for manufacturing to become a manufacturing engineer? And I used to ask all my co-ops this, how did you pick manufacturing engineering? Like, how did you get there? Oh, that's what my dad does. Or, um, I had a buddy and I changed majors. All right. Uh, one last thing I want to touch on here on the Siemens thing, and we're going to get into this in the podcast more next week. But the question was, that's come up a lot is, is Siemens serious about interoperability, right? I'm much nicer to Siemens than I am to Rockwell. Okay. And the reason why is because based on my conversations and my interactions with Siemens and my interaction with Rockwell, I'm much more convinced that Siemens understands the problem with the industry 3.0 approach to digital transformation, right? Unified stack, right? Connected enterprise, as Rockwell likes to say. <clears throat> they mean the Rockwell connected enterprise, not your connected enterprise. And in my, based on my conversations with their applications engineers or product engineers, they Siemens understands the problem. Rockwell, you could go to Automation Fair this year and Go talk to three different people in three different product groups, and they'll have no fucking idea what the other one's doing. None. Left hand never knows what the right hand's doing. Ever. In Siemens, the people who work in Mendix, the people who work in MindSphere, the people who are working in the Industrial Edge group, the people who are working in the automation group, especially around TIA Portal, they all know what everyone else is working on. There's a common cohesive strategy. Okay? So, but the question is, is... Siemens serious about interoperability? My opinion is still yes, but they have a long way to go. Okay. I, I know that internally, yes, Siemens is serious about interoperability, but you got to understand that in order for them to focus on interoperability, they got to pick an IOT protocol. Okay. Or they got to support many IOT protocols. There is, there are some really strong political headwinds that they have to fight against as it relates to OPC, because I'll say this, OPC is not an IOT protocol. It's not edge driven. It's not report by exception, although it can be, and it is certainly not fucking lightweight. It's not even close to lightweight. Okay. Um, and as long as Siemens is more, so their field bus on the edge and their OPC UA, it, you know, from L2 and above, primarily, they're going to have problems with interoperability. Okay, um, because PubSub is isn't just the future of digital transformation or industry 4.0. It is the present. It is the mechanism for building a digital infrastructure, and the PubSub standard Part 22 of the OPC standard is garbage. I mean, I, I literally, Arlen Nipper and I were talking about this last week at ICC and we were talking, you know, we were talking about the history of OPC and all the times I get fucking yelled at. Stefan Hopp sends me emails bitching because I'm being unfair to OPC. Matt Paris is going and presenting to people all the time. Matt Paris, a member of the community, you know, it, you could, you could literally, you could list off all the problems with the standard and the political headwinds, the political realities of what OPC is trying to achieve are, is so prevalent. It's so thick that they can't see the forest through the trees. They can't see those problems you put on paper. Part 20, the pub sub standard needs to be thrown away and start and start all over. And, and Arlen and I were just talking about this last week. I said, they literally need to throw it away and start from scratch. And so one of the issues you run in with Siemens is because Siemens, the political realities 
the connections, the political connections between Siemens, Beckoff, OPC. And the realities of the OPC standard make it difficult for Siemens to implement inter interoperability at the speed at which they should be. But are they serious about it? I don't have any doubt. I don't have any doubt that they're serious. Um, and that's based on public and private conversations I've had with many decision makers at Siemens. Uh, sorry, part 14. Uh, Matt Paris. But Walker, part 14 pub sub is getting updated to recommend topic pass. That's not enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the fact alone that they even propose that, Matt, it's like, I mean, I, that I, it, it's the shaking my head emoji. That's all I see, you know, and I meant part 14. Sorry, guys. Uh, pub sub MQTT, Joseph Jones. So the pub sub um, part of the OPC standard recommends that you use MQTT as the transport layer. <clears throat> you don't have to use MQTT, but um, Dave Hellier, take it easy, buddy. Um, all right, guys. Uh, OPC is a data connector. Yep. And then LinkedIn user. Mettler Toledo supports roles in STEM manufacturing and next-gen operations programs. They recruit within the local areas and have so far great success with then co-op to hire. Schools focus on IFIFO. All right. Awesome. I appreciate everyone. That's, uh, that is the podcast for this week. I will delve deeper into uh, Siemens and interoperability next week. Also, I didn't get to the Volkswagen announcement about the fully autonomous uh, level five self-driving vehicle that's going to take the place of like short regional flights. We will go over that next week and what my opinion is on Volkswagen's approach here. And do I think they're going to achieve it? Um, be sure to like, subscribe, share this video with anyone who might think uh, it's interesting. And we will see you in the next one.